welcome to episode 47 of the False Neutral Podcast, part of the Hooniverse Podcast Network. Pete, Eric, and Garrett are all here, and our guest today, uh, returning after just a couple weeks, Mr. Mark Atkinson. Hi, Mark. Hi there. Uh, we Thanks have, for having me. We have someone in each time zone, Eastern, yeah. Central, Mountain, Pacific, so we're experiencing the wonders of cyberspace. That's right. <laughs> By the way, before we get started, uh, Eric, uh, I no longer feel bad that last week you were saying I was giving you all kinds of ideas by showing you pictures of the blaster bike, that you didn't need any more ideas for projects. Uh, I was listening to the Camden Tub podcast, and you asked uh, Brad and Cam about rotary-powered 914s, and now... I've got that stuck in my head, and I want one so bad. <laughs> All day today, I'm like, oh, because I had a friend of mine who had a 914 oh, probably eight to ten years ago and got to drive it. And one of those with a, a slightly breathed-on rotary would just about be the coolest thing ever. As long as it was a triple rotor, so it had a little bit more torque. Who needs torque? People that appreciate a good driving car. <laughs> Getting out of their own way. Yeah. 914s are pretty light. That's true. Yeah, they're like 21, 2200 pounds, so. And they handle relatively well. Not bad. Yeah, for an Audi. For an Audi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, our subject today is two strokes at uh, at Mark's suggestion. So, uh, Mark, why don't you kick it off? What did you have in mind? I don't know. I mean, we're a group of two-stroke loving people, and I figured, hey, why not talk about two strokes? It seems to be kind of a dying thing. So, you know, when I find like-minded people, I, I always like talking about it. You know, I'm, I'm really surprised that uh, even in the off-road world, the two-strokes have become such a rarity. Because it used to be, you know, probably 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was two-stroke street bikes had kind of gone away, but they were still really popular for racing and for dirt. And now it even seems like just play bikes and stuff like that are all four-strokes. Well, um, KTM's 300... XC and 250 XC, the two-stroke flavors. If if I remember right, I think those are still their best-selling off-road, competitive off-road machine. Really interesting. Mm. Yeah, at least not for recreational use, but for actual competition. The two-strokes are still enormously popular. One of the things I know uh, from friends of mine who race, road race mostly, but also do some training on motocross bikes is that uh, four-stroke motocross bikes are great right up until the point that They're not. they have half the, they have the service life and four times the cost for a rebuild. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so especially if you're working with young kids and you're trying to bring them up through motocross, it gets way more expensive much more quickly, and it's actually moved a lot of parents out of bringing their kids up through motocross because of that. And they're starting to see some of that now, which is why I believe they changed the rules a year or two ago, at least in the outdoor stuff. And I'm not sure about Supercross yet um, to kind of factor two strokes back into the equation. That, that's interesting yeah. because it wasn't that many years ago that they had the motocross four stroke nationals that they specifically had to exclude two strokes to make the four strokes competitive in that in that competition, you know, when it was a, right, and they all, were double double the the displacement too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I remember four hundred and fifty cc's or something, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, four hundred fifty cc's replaced the two fifties, and um, only only now are they about as powerful as the two fifties were um, back in the day. But they do have a lot more torque, which is nice. But yeah, like you said, Eric. Um, the complexity of the engine and the the amount of wear and the amount of parts that need to get serviced is um, dramatic compared to the two-stroke. But, you know, I keep for years now, I've been hearing about direct injected, clean burning two-strokes and, and all of this. And 
that they're going to make a comeback. But I still have yet to see any anything come of that, really. Well, except for the uh, the marine industry right. has has got a bunch of. I mean, I think Mercury makes one that is just super clean, does really well, doesn't carbon foul and do all the the terrible things that normal direct injection does. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, there's some development there, but it it seems to be a, a a trend, and if it doesn't pick up with other manufacturers, it just sort of languishes. Yeah, it seems like the marine industry is a good place for that technology because you know they have these outboard motors, and you know they want more and more power, but obviously they have limited space to do it. So a two-stroke motor just makes a lot of sense from a, a, a space perspective, and, and so. Wait. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so I don't know. I, I've heard about KTM's direct injected two strokes, and I hope that um, they do something with that. It seems like they would considering the popularity of their 300 and 250 two strokes in off-road racing. But um, so far, I haven't seen seen much of it, but I still look for it. It's just so tricky to to do fuel injection with a two stroke. Yeah, yeah, it really, it kind of has to be a direct injected setup, but it can be done. It's been done before. Yeah. If you want, if you want to see the wrong way to do it, just read the trials of the Bomoda V. Dewey. No, right, right. <laughs> well, and anyway, if there was a way to do it wrong, they did it about <laughs> seven different times. Right. Isn't that what Italians do? <laughs> True. And and especially Bomoda. Which I, I love. I think they make the most beautiful bikes, but they all seem to come off about halfway done or maybe three quarters done. Yeah. What, what's really interesting is go do an, a Google search on any two-stroke bike and micro squirt, and you'll yeah. find how many people have started it. And I dare you to find one person who ever got to the end of the thread and said, yeah, it's working great. No bugs and uh, it's drivable and everything's great. <laughs> I, yeah. I think one of the things there's a there was a long thread on the AF1 Aprilia board about this I want to say a year year and a half ago, uh, and one of the guys who's kind of the head mechanic or head of the service department, uh, really smart dude, especially when it comes to two strokes, and there was I think the thread came into something like direct injection two strokes work great up until about seven thousand RPM, and then there's something about combustion and everything else where after 7,000 RPM, it gets a little funky. So you have to do, that's where there's like, then you'd have to do this whole combination of direct versus direct and port injection. I I wish I could find the, th- I looked for the thread and I couldn't find it the other day, um, but it was actually a really good read. I'll try to, I'll try to find it so that Pete can put it in the notes on, uh, over on, uh, on our Hooniverse page. Yeah. I wonder if the injector just can't pulse fast enough to keep up with the higher RPMs, but I don't know. There are several injected. Uh, Neil Lickford in New Zealand runs a, a, a motocross bike. I want to say it's a Kawasaki D7. Does that sound model sound familiar? I don't know. But he's been riding it for years and just slightly modifying it and stuff. And there's another guy named Martin that runs an RZ350 road race bike. That mm-hmm. has a micro squirt injected setup thing that he's run for years and been very successful with. Yeah, yeah. Because I was going to say, Pete, there is a on the forums of the micro squirt website. There is a guy that has a RZ that I don't know how well it runs, but it does work and and it uh, it runs and all that. Um, and there's a whole write up on it, but I'm not sure if that's the same person that road races it or not. Uh, speaking of RZs, I, Mark, I don't know if you happen to listen to last week's podcast, but Garrett, you should tell him about the 650 <laughs> motor that you've got. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll put, um, some pictures in the chat. I don't know if Mark will be able to see them or not, but, um, Pete can probably post them up on to the Hooniverse site. But at any rate, um, so Mark, as you might know, uh, my dad, he actually retired a couple of years ago. So the race shop isn't, um, isn't what it once was, but he used to build two stroke and four stroke uh, race motors for all sorts of different purposes, but, um, mainly RZ based motors. And in the late nineties, early two thousands, he built a RZ based motor that 
when it was first built, it was 580 cc's, and um, that was done through a 76 millimeter bore and a 10 millimeter stroked crankshaft. And it went, underwent a few alterations to the point where when it was done, it was 650 cc's. Mm-hmm. Um, it used uh, aftermarket cylinders with um, the bore centers had to be moved outwards quite oh, a long ways right. because, as you can imagine, a stock RZ piston, 64 millimeters. And, and this, when it was done, ended up using 78 millimeter pistons. But additionally, the trans- transfer port volume was like... 70 or 80 percent more than an rz cylinder so the the cylinders actually had to be moved outwards quite a long ways um and so it had these aftermarket cylinders uh grafted on um a custom-made crankshaft with four centers that were moved out uh it used dual 44 millimeter electron carburetors through um a cr500 reed cage on each cylinder i was telling uh, Pete and Eric last week that on methanol it made 156 horsepower. Wow! Uh, on gas it was 130, 132 or something like that. But yeah, I'll post some pictures of it. Pretty wild engine. Um, it it stopped. I think they. My dad quit using it in the early 2000s and it got put away on a shelf. And so it's been sitting in our back storage room for you know, the better part of 17 or 16 years uh, just sitting there. Uh, and I've always wanted to do something with the motor. But, you know, the problem is, is every single part on it, two of these motors got made. That's mm-hmm. it. Um, and so it's got two crankshafts. Well, there's a crankshaft for this and a crankshaft for the other motor, but that's it. And there are no other pieces for it. And, right. and same with the rods. Um, the pistons are custom made. Uh, so every single part on it, um, there's really all that I have is all that there is. And mm-hmm. so if I put it in something to run it, I'm just afraid it'll have a failure. And then, you know, if a rod breaks and saws, <laughs> if it saws through the cylinder, that's it. There are right. no more cylinders. So I've always been kind of afraid to run it again. So it's just been sitting on a shelf for <laughs> almost two decades. Huh? Sounds like an interesting, it sounds very familiar to my, uh, land speed, uh, engine, which yeah. is, um, is it a 350 cc motor? Yeah, it's just under 500. So it oh, okay. uses a 71 and a half millimeter bore and a plus eight millimeter, uh, crank. Okay. That's a kind of a weird configuration. Uh, what kind of cylinder? Wait, is this a RZ motor? It is. It's RZ based. Yeah. Okay. What, what kind of cylinders are on it? I make my own cylinders. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, which, you know, it's all, um, I'm on my third iteration. So 2013, I made the first one, which was identical to the RD400 cylinders. Okay. And, and then of course it's evolved and, and gotten much better. And it makes, of course, way, way more horsepower than it, it did then. But yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I need to post pictures, but I don't remember how to do this. We, my dad threw the shop. The biggest RZ based motor that we've used with stock style cylinders was a 521 cc motor. It used 72 millimeter pistons with a 10 millimeter stroke crankshaft. Oh yeah, and and that's so, very close. Yeah. yeah, it it used stock cylinders, um, but the cylinders did have to go through a lot of work to be able to accommodate such a big bore size. All of the head studs had to be moved out. And a, a new head had to be made for it. Um, the base studs were able to be um, kept in the stock location, but not the head studs, just because the the bores encroached into the space. But um, yeah, this motor that I was supposed to pictures of is is quite a different animal. Uh, it took a whole lot more work. Um, for instance, the where the transfer ports on these cylinders meet the cases, um, it with the stock style cases, um, the transfer ports would have stuck out past the size of the cases. So it all had to be welded and filled and all that. So um, the right. cases are actually wider to accommodate the transfer ports of these cylinders. Yeah, that's about the same, same deal. Um, yeah, mine, uh, I have, uh, it's only got six 
through hold down bolts because of that same problem, trying to get a, just enough transfer area. And like you say, you know, the 102 millimeter bore spacing is terrible. I mean, it just, yeah. you just can't get a decent well, shape transfer port. Yeah, you're exactly right. And what's frustrating is for so many years, um, there is a manufacturer, uh, I think the name of them was called Mattoon, and they made yeah. billet cases. And they're still around. They are, but and I don't know if they've changed this, but for forever, um, they made these really nice, beautiful cases uh, with the stock bore spacing on them. So you were really limited on what kind of cylinders and displacement you could do right. uh, with it with a twin. Um, but they also made them for triples uh, and you could do all sorts of crazy things. But it was kind of frustrating that they made these really beautiful cases with a stock bore spacing. So you couldn't you couldn't really have a cylinder with a, a large transfer volume. So they, they do make a version that is um, quite a bit wider. I think yeah. they go up to one hundred and forty millimeter bore space. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, and I haven't looked at their cases for years, so I would. Yeah, I'm not surprised that they finally started doing something a little bit wider. Uh, you know, but I think the uh, the whole banshee thing has died off so much. There really has. is not uh, the demand, so it probably. Yeah, at least in much. in sand drag racing now, the big thing is. Um, doing a really, really big displacement single and twin cylinder two strokes with, uh, you know, a complete aftermarket cylinder. But they're doing um, 1,000 and 1,200 cc twins now with, you know, 350 horsepower, uh, some pretty wild stuff. But, yeah, the Banshee cylinders and cases and all that have really just kind of died off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the the whole two-stroke thing has died off. And it's a shame because... You know, the huge amount of development that happened to, uh, uh, for Aprilia's uh, GP teams, you know, head, uh, headed by uh, Jan Thiel has now, you know, out, out on the Internet has, has told everybody what he's done. You know, so the triple uh, exhaust ports and all the really cool stuff. And, and it's kind of all this great information came out into kind of a dead market, into yeah. a dead you know, thought process which is really too bad. Yeah. So, so a good friend of mine actually has two Aprilia GP bikes. He's got a, a 125 and a 250. Um, the the 250 he's had forever. It's a 94, uh, which was the last year before they went to the electronic um, valve control on those. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and one of the everlasting uh, uh, images I always have that he wasn't he's yeah, he's an average, very average rider, um, but he ran on uh, a bunch of AMA 250 stuff for a long time. Um, but coming on to on the backstretch at Mid Ohio, he comes on, and Rich Oliver is not too far behind him, maybe six, seven bike lengths. And Oliver is obviously one of you know was one of the best two you know 250 riders in America ever did. So, but as they come onto the backstretch, they go they both go WFO, and Jamie on his Aprilia 250 pulls away from Oliver. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 Jamie's on a 94 and Rich is probably riding whatever the latest, you know, 2001, 2000, 2001 um, Yamaha two, TZ250 at the time. And it was just funny that here's a guy on the what probably what the best Yamaha you can get into America. And here's this old, uh, you know, six generations ago, GP bike. and He's just trucking away from him. <laughs> yeah. Um, and even Chuck Sorensen, who ran a, an Aprilia 250 uh, newer than he did. Hey, you know, a lot. So much of that is with with knowing what you're doing with tuning. And Jamie, being an engineer, he'd got he's got like seven books full of notes on everything on that thing, so he could tune that within an inch of his life. But anyway, Sorensen couldn't even pull him on on any kind of real straight, which yeah. was always and he that was always like his ego ego stroke to himself was, yeah, my bike's faster than Chuck's. <laughs> so, anyways, yeah, it was funny. But yeah, those are um, and then his 125 bike is a 90. 96 i think um but yeah those things you you tear them apart and look in and look in the cylinders and everything it's just just beautifully beautifully done yeah hey mark are you running methanol on this uh no nope. nope. i run gas. i run gas um yeah there is a fuel class right uh, but the idea of of trying to tune for fuel, if you look at the uh, 
motorcycle land speed records, yeah. the gas classes and the fuel classes are usually the gas classes are faster than the fuel classes because yeah. it's just so difficult to go out and try and tune for one and then switch over and try and get a record for the other. So most guys yeah. go out and they'll run a gas class, set the record. And if they're going fast enough, they'll switch to fuel, yeah. which means all they do is change classes and still run the same fuel. And so that ends up being almost the same speed or right or close yeah and and as i'm sure you know methanol can be so difficult to uh to tune consistently day over day i mean temperature fluctuations um small temperature fluctuations can make a huge difference in the tune Um, oh yeah and, and i don't know if people are doing this in land speed racing but um with several of our motors including the 650 uh, motor here we would run the same motor on gas and methanol with the same compression um with only making some simple adjustments to the electron carbs the nice thing about the electrons is they don't use jets um so you can uh, change a metering rod and then either use one power jet for gas or two power jets for methanol oh really and and so you could run it's not an optimal setup, but you can run about 14 and a half to one compression and run 120 octane gas and take just a little bit of spark lead out of it. And then um, you can switch over to methanol, use the same compression ratio, which is a little bit low for methanol. But, you know, you'll still get the advantages of uh, methanol with even with 14 and a half to one compression, but then change the metering rod and the carburetors and then switch over to two power jets, uh, which is a really simple change. Electrons are cool because of the metering rod. You just pull the, the slide out of the carburetor, change the metering rod and drop the slide back in. So you don't even have to take the carbs off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I the, still run old VMs just because I, I know what makes them run. And yeah. I'm comfortable with tuning them. So, yeah, the electrons, um, they're just so simple and they work so, so well. Um, and what makes it easy for methanol, especially, is they don't have a main jet. So you, you don't have to change jets on them. So when you do have uh, temperature fluctuations day over day, if you're running an EGT, you can measure your exhaust temperatures and then just make a simple power jet change. And um, with methanol, you know, you're you're making all the horsepower you can if your exhaust temperatures are about 11, 1125 degrees. Any yeah. more than that, then you start uh, risking piston damage. But, right, um, right. you know, you can, you know, if you're going to tune, you just take your uh, power jet and you can just turn it in a little bit until you start reaching 1100 degrees or so. And then you're set. And that's all you have to do for the electrons mm. to tune them. It's just brilliant. They're really amazing carburetors. I may have to play with those. Yeah, I run, I can, and I've, I've seized on the salt. Uh, I don't know how many times, so many times, I mean, yeah. maybe 50 or 60 times, but I can watch the EGT and I can run to right at 1290. As soon as I see 1300 degrees, I you're see, done. Damn, yeah. Melt yeah, the, the It's so yeah, yeah. weird. And I can back it off and I can run it 1280 and 1290. But it, as soon as it hits that 1300, that's the, threshold yeah. yeah gasoline runs a little bit warmer um than methanol methanol if you if you see 1200 with methanol you're toast right uh, yeah. gasoline you can get away with a little bit more temperature uh, but yeah that's that's kind of funny are you using with the uh with the ele- mark with the elevation that you run for the salt flats does that make tuning methanol that much harder as well i don't know because i'm at it being in salt lake i'm at the same uh, elevation as a salt sure. flat. So I have an advantage where I tune right for where I am and I've never really ever changed the tune once I get out there. Yeah. The, the elevation itself, well, cause the elevation doesn't change. So your tune's not going to change, um, at that elevation. But if you were to tune for sea level and go to, Oh uh, yeah. You know, the salt flats isn't going to be radically. I, w- I was just thinking that at 5,000 feet plus, you just, there's so much, so much less air to begin with that. Yeah, it would be I mean, a little, you're certainly going to make, you're going to make way less power at that elevation. And, um, but the biggest thing for methanol, and it doesn't really affect gasoline so much. It's just the temperature and, uh, and, and air, air density, but that's not going to change. Uh, so the temperature uh, five to ten degrees and temperature fluctuation will make a wild difference in your tune with methanol. Hmm. Yeah, I've never played with methanol. 
the reason I originally built the the liquid cooled, I ran uh, this bike with uh, with the air cooled cylinders for years, but mm-hmm. I just couldn't get rid of the heat, you know, because you yeah. run on the salt, you're running a full mile at wide open throttle, and you right. just can't get rid of the heat. Yeah. Um, so I went to the to the liquid cooled thing. Um, um, and somebody has told me since I think Wobbly told me that. He ran wide open throttle with methanol and, and could do it air cooled. And I thought, you know, that might have been the solution to yeah. still use that uh, air cooled motor. Yeah, it does run cooler. Um, are you using a radiator or do you use a recirculation tank? I use, uh, so uh, 2013, I used two little motocross radiators in a, uh, a ice water bath. Oh, okay. And it worked really well. So now what I run is an industrial heat exchanger, a plate heat exchanger, mm-hmm. if you've ever seen that. Yep. I had never seen one, but my buddy who's a plumber came over and I'm telling him my my woes of keeping things cool. He says, Why don't you why don't you try a plate heat exchanger? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't even know what you're talking about, but <laughs> it works so slick. So I yeah. have it in the tail. So I fill up the tail before I make a run. I fill up the tail with ice and water, and it just has a little uh, recirculation pump that pumps the cold water through, and then it it feeds uh, um, engine coolant through. Yeah. And is your bike a is it and it just a RZ chassis, non streamlined? Uh, R RD. Let me sh- oh, show. Oh, okay. Uh, it's an RD four hundred. That's the picture right there. That's without the fairing. Okay. Let me see if I can find one with the fairing. Oh, here's one. That's with the fairing on the trailer. So I run it in both classes. Okay. Streamline and, or partial streamline and and not. Yeah, got it. Yeah. That's cool. Now, That's on I have a question about the streamlining on that. What do they consider streamlining? Is it, you know, truly no body work at all in order to be non-streamlined? You have to be able to see the rider's body. Yeah, um, you do. Even with the streamline, you have to be able to see uh, everything but your hands and forearms from the side or the top. So if you look at a lot of land speed bikes, they'll have the kind of they'll be completely fared, except for they'll have the cutout for the guy's legs and stuff because of the way the rules are written. So I don't take it to that to that level, but maybe I should. But yeah, I, at these uh, speeds, um, you know, you're not doing 300 miles an hour. Do you think it really makes much of a difference? If yeah, it's huge because I I do about 15 miles an hour uh, difference. Uh-huh. The fared and non-fared. Right. At, at the 100, you know, 50, 160 miles an hour. Okay. So, and, and the full streamlined, that's the the ones that kind of look like a rocket where you sit inside it, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, full streamlined, uh, like Rocky Robinson's, the Ack Attack, and yeah. Okay. Oh, um, uh, yeah. Can I? I'm I don't sorry. have any pictures. I was going to say there's a, a, a streamliner, streamlined uh, motorcycle that I liked a lot called the Bud. I think it was a Budafab, Budfab streamliner. Yeah, yeah, the little yeah, 50 use a road, yep. yeah, yeah, such That's a, cool a neat bike. little. Um, I wonder if I could find a picture of that. That is really a neat, neat motorcycle. Yeah, I was. Um, they have a website, and I was looking at a lot of their stuff. Um, there, I think there are a couple of engineers, or maybe one's an engineer um, at a university, but they built a, a little 50cc Rotax-powered um, streamline motorcycle. And it's the neatest streamliner. It, should it is, and it went it. really fast. Here's a picture right here. Yep. Really a neat motorcycle. Yeah. A lot of engineering in it, too. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah, they were super successful in a short time, which just doesn't really happen on the salt. Usually, <laughs> yeah. it's uh, a, a lifetime of struggle. Right. <laughs> but I wanted to ask, did you, uh, when you were out there, did you see the uh, Honda uh, S-Dream Streamliner? The, uh-huh. The it was out there. 60? Yeah. That's amazing. They went as fast as they did on 660 cc's. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What, what did they end up going? Uh, two ninety. Oh, 
They go that fast? Let me let me look it up, but uh oh. That's awesome. Was it force inducted? It I'm assuming it was. I, it, it's I think it's pretty much every Every kind of horsepower additive. <laughs> everything that you could do. I'm sorry. Ni- I, nitrous injected. I, I overspoke slightly. 261. That's still amazingly 261. fast. 261.875. Yes. Yeah, for the, for the displacement. That's pretty wild. Yeah. And it, it, uh, they basically took the design of their S660 K car motor, uh, Kai car motor. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but, uh, uh, they basically took that design and then did everything they know to make power out of it. I don't think there was anything that was a production part, but it was the basic design as, as the basis for it. They just took those blueprints and did everything they could to try and get power out of it. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned it last week, but, uh, it was driven by, uh, Hirokumiyagi, who is, was a 500, uh, Grand Prix racer. And now he is the designated, uh, rider and driver for the Honda Heritage Collection. He basically, oh, his no, job no, is no. to take all of their priceless, uh, historical artifacts out and exercise them every so often. Wow. What a rough life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds great right up until the point something goes pear-shaped and it goes bad, and that's one of one with no spare parts, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's, right. The, uh, it's the place kicker syndrome. When you well, do like, it right, like you're the hero. Like taking an NSR and... out and running it or something, huh? Exactly. Yeah, NR750. Yeah, right, right. A lot, a lot of parts left over for that one. Yeah. I never could figure out how you get rings to seal on an oval piston. It's just... That- well, there, and therein lies the problem. Right, right. Honda couldn't. Honda couldn't really figure it out real that well either. Well, they they eventually did, but it was it. They had like, what did I? I read like like six guys or ten guys or something. That's all they did for like two and a half years was investigate how to do that. And Piston rings, right? Yeah, and it yeah. involved the design, the manufacturing tolerances. You know, they had to make them. They had to deliberately make them misshapen so that when they manufactured them, they would warp to the right dimensions and things like that. And uh, it, it, it was, I read an article that was mind blowing. Even knowing what I know about engines, if I like, if somebody came to me with that idea, I would just have to laugh out loud <laughs> and, and know that. Whatever they were trying to accomplish, it was not worth the effort. Like to produce an oval bore and an oval piston. God, that just sounds stupid. <laughs> you know, well, everything sealing is always the thing people can't figure out when it comes to rotaries. It's the apex yeah. seals. They can't make right. them work. Uh, 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 Have rot- seen- rotary valves. Seen- the problem with rotary valves is always they can't keep them from, you know, can't keep them sealed properly. It's just, that's always new revolutionary designs always end up running up against that brick wall. Okay. Yeah. Look at that link I just posted. And that's on a round rotary, which is cool as anything. So it gets rid of the seal problems. If somebody had ever built the build this thing. Yeah, hmm. it looks uh still very complicated to oh, machine. Oh yeah. But... Yeah, and I don't know you it would be difficult to machine that piece. So but it's interesting because you get rid of all the corners of the seals, all those apex seals. Yeah. Hey Mark, uh other than your land speed bike, what other kind of two-stroke projects or motorcycles or anything that you do you work on? Ride. Well, you know, my love are, is the RDs. I just, so I've got, uh, a couple of RD 350s and I think I have four, three RD 400s, including okay. the, the race bike. But, you know, the, all the other ones are just fun street bikes in different tuning levels. Most of them are, are, uh, uh you know, typical difficult to ride. 
peaky. Yeah. <laughs> I seem to, to draw to that, but you know, they're all piped and the one, my little RD three fifty has got one of my old, uh, 400 top ends on it. Yeah. So it, it doesn't, you know, and it's, it's really a handful to ride. It's a lot of fun, but it's so much work. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've seen uh, a picture of it. We talked about it on a previous podcast. I'll probably pull up another picture while I'm talking about it. But um, a couple years ago, me and a friend of mine went up to a uh, motorcycle museum that was closing in British Columbia. And, and I purchased a couple of motorcycles out of it. And one was a Suzuki Rebel 350 that I've talked about before. But another one, which I haven't posted any pictures of, I need to get some of it. Um, is a RD 350 that was owned by Don Vesco. In fact, when I got the title, it was still in Don Vesco's name. And it has this, the serial number one, uh, fairing set. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So this RD 350 has the first fairing set and it's the full detail section, the front fairing, uh, windshield, all of it. The very first one, uh, at least production one that Don Vesco made. For an wow. RD350. It's a really neat bike. Um I'll I'll grab some pictures of it and yeah, maybe yeah, post them up on the it. next next podcast. But uh pretty cool. It's it's uh maroon, so it's not the greatest color, but uh still a Don Vesco RD three fifty that I got out of this museum, along with uh old Suzuki Rebel three fifty two. That's a picture of my RD three fifty with the four hundred top end. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, we raced with the Vescos for years and years. Don yeah, was yeah. was around and he was just a, a, a guy. I had no idea as a, a young kid that he was this legendary character. He was just Don. So yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just... yeah, my my dad and Don got to talk quite a bit. Um it was kind of a random occurrence where there's this a snowmobile shop up in Seattle. Uh, I don't know if they're there anymore, but they're called Union Bay. And they did a lot of uh, performance snowmobiling stuff. And my dad was working, uh, coincidentally, on the engine that I was showing you guys at 650. And when he was up at Union Bay, he had uh, some two-stroke questions. Uh, and the owner of the shop was like, well, you know, I, I don't really know. But I think I know somebody that could probably help you. And so my dad got a phone number from the guy. And called this guy up because he might have some two-stroke information. And it just happened to be Don Vesco. Uh, The the guy that owned the snowmobile snowmobile shop up in Seattle was just longtime friends with Don Vesco. And, you know, like, just happened to know some two-stroke stuff. So, yeah, my dad ended up having a conversation with Don. And and over the years, kind of got to become friends with him and exchanged a lot of two-stroke information. So... A lot of the stuff on that 650 engine, um, a lot of the information on how to set it up kind of came from Don, which is uh, kind of neat, but a really just random chance uh, phone call. And long story short, he ended up, you know, kind of becoming friends with Don. So, oh. yeah. So, Mark, I posted it, an NSR piston. Yeah, see, that, that's cool. <laughs> uh, so, Mark, of, of all the two stroke engines that you've seen over your years for you what was the best whether design engineered from your standpoint what was the best one you ever saw well i think for sure the the aprilia that rsa rsr series of gp engines is i think was taken as far as two strokes ever will Mm. that really amazing but in my heart the bike I would love to have someday is is the TZ750. I mean, I iconically cool, just amazing. You know, all very dated and stuff now, but just I mean, and at the time it was just mind-blowingly cool. So the closest that I'll ever get to a TZ750 are the billet kicker gears that we use in our big displacement RZ motors. Um, the kickshaft starter gear is the same on a TZC three, uh, 750 as it is a 350, and they're a lot stronger. And as you might know, they if you have a, a big compression, big displacement RZ motor, um, sometimes those kicker gears can break. And so uh, we got a we bought a stockpile of these 
TZ750 gears uh, that we keep around. And that's about as close as I'll ever get to one because, you know, those aren't (laughs) (laughs) $40,000. What about you, Eric? Oh, I I will always have a uh, a soft spot in my heart for my uh, RZ500. Um, yeah, not the most efficient design there ever was, especially once you like got into a little bit and understood stood some of the design compromises uh, that Yamaha made to make it into a production bike. Um, but you know, it's one of those things of that that I, I'd still. If I were to do something stupid, uh, would rather than go buy something newer, nicer, and more reliable, I would still probably spend that same amount of money to go find a nice, clean um, RZ500 just to see if the second time around was as good as the first time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I, I would probably go with you in that uh, it, it's going to be some form of, of, of race two-stroke, Whether and, and I would go to like a TZ250 um, just because – they were super easy to work on uh, and they made they were dead reliable uh, and and they made really good power. I mean, that was it was one almost it, it was even more forgiving than the RS125 that I raced, uh, which I could be off three jet sizes and that thing still ran amazingly well. And, you know, uh, as long as you kept it above nine grand was <laughs> just ripped um, below nine grand. And it was like, you know get out your stopwatch and wait 45 minutes for it to get up to power. But anyways, um, but yeah, the TZ250 was just such a, such a great engine. And Peter, I, I, I would have to say I'm a bull taco fan. That's that I'm really any of the old piston port singles. uh, I, they're, they're never going to make the most power, but, they're so tractable and so simple and so tunable within, you know, uh, one of, I've, I've mentioned this, uh, more than once, but, uh, one of my, f- the thing that made me fall in love with bull tacos was, uh, an article by Lane Campbell. And he made the point that basically taking the same gelat, same design, the same parts, simply porting it differently they were able to do trials motors that were, you know, plonk along unstoppable at 15 miles an hour and win the 24 hour, uh, 24 hours of, uh, Manchuik with basically the same motor, you know, and they were beating road racers that were four times their size. And it was nothing different than pipe and porting and, carburetor tuning and things like that uh they only had two gear sets at least in their production bikes they had uh you know their trials trials transmission and their uh street and mx transmission and two sets of gear ratios and everything else was just porting and that fascinates me Hmm. yeah uh Another one is I really, really like the Kawasaki, uh, rotary valve singles. The, the, like the, the big horn, the KE100, the, uh, all those little, uh, rotary valve singles because they really, for their size and for the time, they made an incredible amount of power, still were very tractable and they would run forever and ever and ever and I thought that was just a very impressive design. They could kind of, you know, they they were the rational choice and the speedy choice. They kind of had the whole... And I'm really surprised that rotary valves have kind of completely gone away. And not that there's too many things out there, but the two strokes they are making now, I can't think of many rotary valves that are still in production. I think, no. I, th- I think case read, you know, uh, or reed valves are just... Uh, a little bit more flexible. Yeah, they are certainly more forgiving. And I think they're probably a whole lot cheaper and easier to manufacture for a production bike. I just like the aftermarket things that people are creating with two-stroke motors. Like, I think we mentioned on the last podcast that there's a twin and I think a four-cylinder CR500 motor that somebody 
has made. Um, I think I have a picture of the the four cylinder one, but um, I just love what people are doing with these things with, uh, you know, taking CR 500 uh, cylinders and making cases for it and, and putting it all together. I think that's kind of the coolest thing. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very neat. That's a dyno graph of what my uh, race bike motor makes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Those are impressive numbers. Are are either of you guys uh, familiar with AIN Performance, A-A-E-N? They make uh, uh, mostly snowmobile stuff. Uh-uh. They actually make their own two-stroke V4. I think it's, it's oh, I don't know, like 1,200 or 1,500 cc water-cooled <laughs> V4 uh, for hey, snowmobile racing. Fuel-injected. <laughs> yeah, it, it's... Uh, it's I don't know how, if you can do anything other than just pin the throttle and, you know, do radar runs with it, but, uh, it's a, and I have, I, I, I know they're obscenely expensive. I couldn't tell you how much, but it's amazing. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, when you make 30, 30, uh, 30 every, you know, 18 months. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a company called, uh, PSI. And they make snowmobile stuff, and they have a triple cylinder motor, um, and they're also just wildly expensive. But they have an eighteen hundred cc triple uh, that they claim is three hundred and sixty horsepower. No nope. and it's seventeen thousand five hundred dollars. <gasps> Ow! Yeah, yeah. And there's some. There's a bunch of people in the karting world that have some really innovative, interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem carding is not popular in the U.S. So it's more of a European deal. So yeah, that's we true. See all that. It's, I think as as much as people want to hang on to the the two strokes, you know, they are going away, and there's going to become a time where you just they're just not going to be making them uh, at all. Um, you know, KTM still does, and I think Yamaha still makes a a two stroke uh, two fifty. Yeah. Um, but you know, they are going to go away and as clean as they'll make them, they're just not popular anymore. And so people just don't gravitate towards them. Well, two strokes have an easy, have the image kind of worldwide, sort of like diesels do in the U S you know, we'll, we'll skip Volkswagen for a minute. Um, <laughs> but it's just that, Oh, it's this. So it's gotta be slow and dirty and noisy. And, and, it, and it doesn't have to be, or, you know, unless you want to make it that way intentionally. Um, you know, and, and back in the early or late, late 90s, yeah, I guess it was the late 90s when, you know, Hondas became, you know, decided they wanted to save the world with their engines and got, got out of the two stroke thing and that the four strokes were more environmentally friendly. And it turns out it's ends up all being about the same. Um, but yet the, the legacy of the smoky, noisy two stroke still remains and i think that is the biggest obstacle is convincing everyone or trying to convince everyone to uh that that's no longer true yeah yeah yeah. you know and a two-stroke makes more power and is way cheaper to produce i mean you can get rid of the whole valve train is you know is 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 a huge advantage to any manufacturer if so you could get them on board to 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 change to market this to the world so just being in, in Detroit and, and knowing uh, and, and being involved in the auto industry, um, you know, there's been research over the, the last few decades. And as manufacturers are looking to save weight any way they can, um, there has been a lot of talk at looking at two stroke engines. And if they could make them to some of the ridiculous things looking forward for emissions, they would for that very reason of a, it would cut thousands of dollars off of manufacturing costs because of no valve train. And because lightweight is they're trying to find ways to save weight any way they can. And it's getting very expensive to do so. You know, again, you're chopping easily a hundred pounds of weight just between. So, you know, of, of how less complicated all the cylinder heads are and, um, you know, not you drive uh, uh, chains and everything else to drive cam gear. Uh, they would do that in a heartbeat. But again, you'd go into that whole thing of, all right, now we've we've had the thing with diesels. How are we going to say the two stroke cars are a good thing? It just it'll come to the point where that maybe when you're using one as a generator engine for right. your electric car or something like that, maybe. Um, but that's probably about where that would go have to go. 
Yeah. And they just they don't have the torque output that would satisfy the needs of, you know, the everyday driver. I don't think it wouldn't be a pleasant engine to have in a car. I don't think it would be a lot like driving an RX-7, you know, just kind of all horsepower, no torque. You just do it. You just do it up like you would a trials bike, where it's you know it's all about the cracking the throttle, and you have all your torque and power right there. Yeah, well, I mean, but you do have to sacrifice a lot of horsepower to achieve that low end torque on the on the yeah. two strokes. So, yeah. Hey, Pete, is that a current model? I couldn't remember if they still make them. Yeah, like- I just I just looked it up. The that I just posted a picture of a 2017 YZ250, and I think that's the last of the Japanese that are still doing a two stroke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, since we were talking about electron carburetors, Mike, I'm going to plug mine because I've got a set on eBay right now. Uh, if you're interested, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> Wait. Yeah, there we go. I Those would be such a mystery to tune that I'm not sure I could. Uh... Electrons? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, they're really not. They're well, they're, uh, they're they're so different. I mean, I know they're simple when you know what you're doing, but I wouldn't have a clue. The only thing I've ever tuned is a round slide Makuni. So, yeah, um, Lectron's website is actually really, really good at not only telling you how to tune it, but also kind of showing you um, what metering rod to use for what displacement and RPM. Um, you know, it's kind of neat. Lectron has it set up a lot like. Um, like Holly or, or uh, you know, a V8 carburetor does where, you know, you, you pick a carburetor based off of RPM and displacement, um, you know, not how much power you're going to use. But then you just have some simple adjustments for how to get it tuned into the range where you need it. And um, the electrons can fit such a wide variety of different engines. And, you know, because they're so simple to tune, uh, once you figure out, how to do it because it is 100% different than a normal carburetor. Um, you can make adjustments so easily. See, that's the thing is that once you learn how to do it, yeah. yeah. You just have to wrap your head around the fact that there are no jets. None. So, and, and that's kind of weird, but um, it's also really simple because there's only one thing really that you have to mess with. Huh. And you don't have right to take the carburetor to, to do it. Switch, but right now I'm with Peter and I'm comfortable with the round slides. I know what makes them run, so I stick with them. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even – I don't like messing with CV carbs. I've, I have a couple times and it's like, uh, don't even like that. Yeah. I hate vacuum sinking carbs, the CV carbs. That sucks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll tell you a two-stroke engine that I would love, I will never ever own, and I would love to find is the uh, the Can-Am 486. Or yeah. Four, is it the 486? Four, 428? I can't remember what, what the heck it is. Uh, no, the 486. That's what it is. Uh, the Type 486, which was the uh, Can-Am MX and ASE 500. Uh, Pook used them, uh, a couple of other people used them. And, uh, Hijira actually made a two-stroke 500, air, air-cooled two-stroke single 500 road racer, even though there wasn't a class that it would really be competitive in. And it falls into the rotary 914 category for me <laughs> that is just it's something i could just sit and think about go oh that'd be really cool a big displacement air cooled uh engine within a fairing seems like it would have some longevity issues but um i actually talked to the guys at hijira and they said the only problem they had was it vibrated really badly yeah and they lowered the compression ratio slightly, and the vibration went away. It didn't make quite the peak horsepower, but it actually was a little bit more tractable. And they said, I think they only built three or four of them, but they said it was it was the same thing that they were using for the uh, Rotax 250 tandem uh, two-stroke motors. And they took that same frame and adapted it to this one with different 
mounting locations. And uh, yeah. they said it was actually really cool. That The problem was there just wasn't a class for it. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. You know, two strokes should run uh, low low compression. I think I think we got lost on trying to tune two strokes like four strokes. Two strokes with a right pipe makes way more power. You know, you put that uh, make the pipe do some work. If you put all the energy into the piston, you get one shot out of it. You're not utilizing the the pipe. And I think our pipe development kind of languished. I think when the Banshee thing really was big and they had one or two off-the-shelf pipes, they, they got lost in that whole thing. So. Yeah. I, I have to ask you guys who have actually done a lot of work. Uh, most people are familiar with uh, the uh, the Gordon Jennings two-stroke tuning guide where he came up with his, his famous measure your – displacement measure your uh you know your your degree your valves when when does your transfer open and such like that. you put it all into that formula and you end up with a pipe has anybody ever used that and does it really work i've heard i've heard people say it gets you pretty close the first time i've heard some people say you end up with conflicting uh, a pipe that you can't actually build in reality uh and I think it was it was used, but it's we've evolved way way past that. So Neil's Neil Vanderkirk has his software, the Mott Two software, that gets a pipe so close it's amazing. And his sim, but it's you know we're now forty years later, so it it's evolved a bunch. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure even all of the bikes that Jennings did his his research on. All of them were piston port. I don't even think there were any, any, maybe some rotary valves, but I don't even think they had any reed valve motors back then. Cause that was in the early sixties. He did that book. Uh, late sixties, I think. Um, I can pull it up. I've, I've got a PDF of the original article that he published in cycle and, yeah. uh, and Blair's book was about the same time, and he did used a little bit different formula, but kind of ended up with the same thing. But still, all very, very dated. Let, dated let me let me ask you this: is uh, is there a formula that you can you? What would you recommend if somebody says, "I just don't want to do trial and error forever"? And pay somebody who knows what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, really, you can't, you can't. I, so I use um, Wayne Wright, who's probably one of the top five two-stroke tuners breathing and uh, alive. Um, it, uh, I pay him to design my pipes. And the difference is just phenomenal. I mean, it's it's massive, massively different. To have somebody that's got a lifetime of experience and somebody who knows the software and knows it, it it's it's a world of difference. Trial and error on a two-stroke is just – it's not even feasible in my – the way I see it. No, and for everyday purposes, um, at least for the most – the majority of the two-strokes that somebody's going to own or ride, um, there is an off-the-shelf pipe that works just fine. Um, and that's if, true. That's if you're building a land speed bike or if you're building something that's highly competitive and you're looking for every advantage you can, then all you can do is spend the money to have, uh, you know, somebody that knows what they're doing build you a pipe. But, you know, for the average consumer, there's a good off the shelf pipe that works well. And it yeah, also depends on what, what you want the motor to do. If you want peak horsepower, your pipe's going to be entirely different than if you want uh, lower RPM power and more torque. So it just kind of depends in that regard also. Well, I, I don't know the exact date on Gordon Jennings article, but the bike that he was using for most of his research was a Yamaha DT one E. So that gives you some idea. It was early seventies. Cause a DT one came out in 67, 69, mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, a DT1E would have been a couple years 
after that. Uh, 71. 71 was a DT1E. So it had to be 71, 72, somewhere in there. Mm. So. so we'd be a little remiss if we didn't talk about the Riger. If you guys are familiar with that, I posted a picture. No, I'm not familiar I with it. I'm not familiar with it either. Yeah, they're, they are a Dutch company, I think, but they've kind of, and, and, and there's a lot of controversy with this whole thing, but what they've done is if you look between the cylinder and the case is a spacer. Mm-hmm. And, and what that does is it separates the, the case, the bottom end from the top end, and they use the piston to supercharge the intake. And the, it's, it's, the piston is on, the bottom of the piston is on a rod that goes through that piston and it's a linear bearing. And then they connect, the, the connecting rod is at the bottom of that rod, that piston rod. And so they are separated and they're, they're claiming that this thing will spin to, you know, they used to claim 30,000 RPM and I think that they've kind <sighs> of, they've, they've, reduce that to 20,000 or 17 or something. But they're claiming huge horsepower. I mean, like 75 horsepower out of 125 cc engine. Wow. Yeah, I haven't seen anything like this. It sounds like pure witchcraft to me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and there's lots of speculation that it is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, there's been so many supposedly revolutionary motors that... uh, uh, you know, it, they're always going to be the next big thing, and they're always the future. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, if it's what it if if it's what they say that it is, then um, you know it deserves some attention. But considering it's not in, uh, no, not being used by the big industries like marine industries and things like that, it's I don't know, probably more hype than anything else. I don't know. I don't either. I don't either. There's uh, a guy, an old road racer. I shouldn't say an old road racer. He's, he ran uh, the 50cc uh, road race, the Cridlers and, you know, all of that, those little teeny mini um, motorcycles um, that land speed races now. And he's got the FIM record on a 50cc Cridler at right about 100 uh, miles an hour, which is fast for a, a 50cc motorcycle. And he's going to have one of these new revolutionary engines out on the salt. It'll be interesting to see how well he does and if it really is. Because he's not, he's not a fool when it comes to two-strokes. So mm-hmm. we'll see. Yeah. You know, something else we have not even mentioned are all the the low RPM two-stroke diesels, the Detroit diesels and Kammernockers and stuff like that, which is a whole nother set of, uh, I, what? Uh, Nightmares. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say a whole different way of thinking. It's it's like a, yeah, they're two-strokes, but it's it's not even the same paradigm Completely of engineering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we're over an hour, so we probably should wrap up. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for coming and joining us again. You're welcome back anytime. Yeah, thank Mark, it was good much. talking to you. It was good talking to you, too. And uh, to all of our listeners, go out on Hooniverse, and I will try to include pictures of as much of what we've talked about as possible in our Hooniverse post this week. Uh, check us out on Facebook. And, uh, Mark, do you have any place where they can go, uh, contact you, interact with you, see your stuff, anything like that? Well, you know, when I talked to you before, we'd, we had the BMW Alpha bike, which just came out Tuesday on Bikes XF. Um, and it's their feature article. So Sweet. check Love that, that out. It's pretty interesting. It's like one of the best bike porn sites there is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and there's been a lot of backlash from a lot of people who say it basically is exactly that. It's looking and not doing. Um, but, uh, there's a lot of stuff that I have issues with from a, it's designed to look good, not to be functional. 
But on the other hand, there are a lot of really cool things out there, both e- bike EXIF and uh, pipe burn. Uh, a couple others I'd recommend ride apart. Knee slider doesn't do much anymore, but when he does, it's good stuff. So you can check all those out. Oh, there you go. Eric and Garrett, I'll talk to you guys next week. All right. See ya. Okay. Thank you guys. Bye-bye.